church on Wednesday nights. Uh, thank you to the work of Chandra and Melinda and Amber, who have invested in them all these weeks. Uh, we're so thankful for that. Um, if you're staying with us, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, um, if you would like to head that direction. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the Christmas story, and we have been uh, looking at the Christmas story through the lens of the characters uh, that make it up. Uh, during week one, we looked at the life of Mary and what following God meant for her. Uh, and then last week, we looked at uh, the life of Joseph and what it looked like uh, for him. In both cases, Mary and Joseph gave up their plans, their lives, their priorities for something greater. Uh, and that something greater was Jesus and the salvation he brought not only to the world, but to their personal lives as well. And what we have seen uh, in this series is that God still invites us to follow him and experience uh, his salvation uh, today. And then he calls us to share that salvation story uh, with the world. So today uh, we're going to be uh, looking at some of the most fascinating and interesting characters in the Bible. Uh, these men are a surprising addition to the Christmas story, but they serve as a reminder of God's sovereignty and the breadth of his love for all people. Uh, the Magi, or the wise men, are so interesting to me because they come from a, uh, another nation. They come from a different faith background. Uh, they are wealthy. They seemingly have everything they need in this world. And yet they see a, see a star, and they drop everything to follow a star and to worship Jesus. Their faith and their story is so uh, incredible, especially, especially as Matthew frames their story in contrast to King Herod uh, and the leaders of the Jewish faith. So that's the story we're going to be in. We're in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through, two, 1 through 12. Whoa. 1 through 12, we're going to read it, and then we'll uh, study it together. So starting in verse 1, Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem, and they asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. For as soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Let's pray. And dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to uh, gather, to worship, to study your word. God, we thank you for, um, for the fact that Jesus came not just for the Jews or for Israel, but he came uh, to offer salvation and forgiveness to all the world. Uh, God, we thank you uh, just for the faith that we see evidenced in these magi or these wise men. And God, I pray that as we study this passage, you would call us to a faith for the first time, perhaps, or would you call us to deeper faith and worship of you? God, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, I'm just going to start. We're just going to start with the first point today. I'm just going to give it to you. And our first point today is this, and that is that God sovereignly calls people for his purposes. God in his all-knowing power calls people to serve him, to accomplish his purposes, and to make him known to the whole of the world. We have seen and we have talked about this in the lives of Mary and Joseph, and now we see it in the Magi. And this is so important uh, to see because God still sovereignly calls you and me to accomplish his purpose of telling the world about the hope and forgiveness available in him. So uh, when we typically think wise men or magi, we think of those three little characters on camels uh, carrying gifts in your nativity set. But what we're going to see is that the wise men are so much more than cute little figurines. First of all, to blow up your city set, there were probably uh, more than three uh, wise men. Scholars estimate that at the low end that there were some 12 people that would have caravaned to worship the newborn king. We always have three people in the nativity because three gifts were brought, but these men were important. They were powerful, so there would have been a group of people that would have traveled with them. It also says in verse 3 that Herod and all of Jerusalem were disturbed by their appearance. Three people coming to town on camels is not that disturbing. But a group of 12 to 50 people on camels from a foreign land land is a little troubling. Another thing we know is that they did not arrive at the manger scene on that Christmas night like the shepherds did. They may have began their journey on that night, but they likely traveled close to 1,000 miles on camel to come and worship Jesus. Scholars estimate that their uh, journey would have taken anywhere from six months to two years. Uh, And also, if you look ahead to King Herod, he's going to attempt to kill off this newborn king. And so he kills every child two years years old and younger. So that kind of gives us a time frame uh, for how long it would have taken them. So when you go home, now you can adjust your nativity scenes and put the wise men on the other side of the room and and, uh, get a little more accurate uh, depiction. But really, neither of those things are, are important or that big of a deal. But who are the wise men or the magi? Why would they uproot their lives to follow a star? And how do they even know to follow a star? Well, the Magi would have been about the most unlikely people to come and worship a king, to come and worship Jesus. The term Magi literally translates to magician. These guys were priests and prophets in Persia, but not the priests and prophets of the Jewish faith. Uh, that had studied the Old Testament. They were the leading religious figures that would have employed astrology, wisdom, and magical incantations in their role. They would have been referred to as kings because they're religious, important, but they weren't political kings that we typically think of. Uh, If if you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you remember uh, Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and in in that time, he summons the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and astrologers to interpret the dream. These are the magi, religious leaders, wise men, magicians, but they were far from followers of the Jewish faith. And yet God draws them to come and worship Jesus, the real king. God calls people from all over to worship and uh, worship and to save uh, the saved. So why did they know to look for a star? Well, most scholars date that back to the days of Daniel as well. Uh, and Daniel's a book that we're going to study in the new year. So come and join us in January and we'll study Daniel together. Uh, but anyway, the story of Daniel unfolds some five to six hundred years before Jesus was born. And at that time, the Babylonians came and they conquered Jerusalem and they conquered the nation of Israel. And what they did is they took the cream of the crop, the, the best of the best, back with them to Babylon to be servants, uh, to serve in leadership and counselor and these wise men type roles. 
Again, if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, this is Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were these guys that were taken back uh, to serve in Babylon. Well, during that five, six hundred years, a lot plays out in history, but Persia eventually conquers Babylon. And then in your Bible, during Ezra and Nehemiah, many of those exiles returned back to Israel. But some would have stayed, and with them, so did the scriptures of the Jewish faith. Their beliefs and prophecies became known in the Persian Empire, especially within the religious realm of the Magi. And because of this Jewish influence in the scriptures and the prophecies, a widespread belief had spread across the Eastern culture that a ruler was going to rise out of Judea. Roman historian Suetonius records this. He says, throughout the whole of the East, there had spread an old and persistent belief that destiny had decreed that at, the time, at that time, men coming forth from Judea would seize power and they would rule the world. And so the Eastern world and the Magi were looking for this. They were on the lookout for someone to rise from Judea. But how does the star factor in? For that, you've got to go back to Numbers 24-17. This is the one of the prophecies they would have been familiar with and that they would have resonated with and would have been looking for and would have been reminded of when they saw the star. Numbers 24-17 says, A star will come from Jacob, a scepter will arise from Israel. And this is an incredible prophecy, and it comes from one of the oddest and most amazing stories in the Bible. So we're going to touch on it uh, real quickly. This story also serves as a reminder that God sovereignly calls people for his purposes, and he often calls unexpected people in surprising ways. So if you go to Numbers 24, it's where we get this prophecy. It comes from a prophet named Balaam. Um, And at the time uh, of Balaam, Israel had an enemy king named Balak who was afraid of Israel, and so he wanted to curse the nation. And so this enemy king, Balak, goes out and he finds Balaam, uh, apparently on the mediocre prophet classifieds page. Uh, And Balaam was a sellout prophet, and so he agrees to curse his own nation for the right price. But because God is all-knowing, he knows this has happened, and God goes to the prophet Balaam and he says, don't curse your own nation. But Balaam doesn't listen, and he gets on his donkey and he heads off to curse God's people. Well, God, he sends an angel to stop Balaam. But Balaam's donkey is the only one that sees this angel standing there with a sword in his hand. And so the donkey turns to the side to avoid this angel. Balaam can't see the angel, and so he beats his donkey. And then finally, the angel moves and the donkey continues. Well, again, the angel with the sword appears, but this time he's standing in the middle of the road with two walls on each side. So when the donkey veers out of the way, Balaam scrapes his foot. Balaam, who struggles with some anger issues, curses and beats the donkey again. So twice he's beat his donkey. We pick up the story in Numbers twenty-two twenty-six. It reads, Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he beat the donkey with a stick. At this point, the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, And the donkey said to Balaam, what have I done to you to make you beat me these three times? Oftentimes we believe that the Bible is boring and not exciting, but we just ran into a talking donkey. That's not something you see every day. Verse 29, Balaam answered the donkey. Another heads up, if your donkey talks, you've got issues. Um, But Balaam answers his donkey, you have made a fool of me. If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now. Verse 30, the donkey said to Balaam. So this conversation continues between Balaam and his donkey. 
Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, said Balak. And then God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel, and he realizes that his donkey has saved his life. So that's where we get this prophecy from. So instead of cursing Israel, God has Balaam prophesy a blessing over the nation. And part of that prophecy is this verse. A star will come from Jacob, a scepter will arise from Israel. And this meant that a king would rule the whole world and bring blessing to all the nations on earth, and it would arise from Israel. But a star would be the indication. And so that's why these wise men know to see a star, to follow it, and to find the king. This is such an incredible display of the sovereignty of God over history. The prophecy of Balaam would have occurred 1,500 plus years before the birth of Jesus. It was carried to Persia. This prophecy was carried to Persia in the capture of Israel 600 years before the birth of Jesus. And now men from 1,000 miles away are traveling to worship the Savior of the world. And as they are traveling, they are bringing gifts that are going to provide for Jesus and his family as they flee from Herod to Egypt, an event that will fulfill even more prophecies. So when the Magi see the star in the sky, they knew that it was the promised sign from God, and they get up and they go. God is sovereign over all of history, and he is sovereign over your life, and he calls you for your good and to accomplish his purposes. All right, second thing I want us to see today is this, and it's really simple, but it's that Jesus offers forgiveness to all people from all places. God doesn't desire just to save the Jews or Americans or Western civilizations, but Jesus came as a sacrifice of sins for all people everywhere. And the book of Matthew does such a great job of capturing this truth. The first people in the book of Matthew to worship Jesus are these pagan wise men from Babylon or from Persia. And then Matthew concludes his account in Matthew 28, 19 through 20 by telling the reader, us, his followers, to go and share Jesus with all the nations. Matthew was reinforcing, reminding, and pointing to the reality that God is not just a God of the Jews, but he is the God of all people. God is for the nations, all people, all races, and all backgrounds. But God is not just for all races, but God is for all people, no matter their socioeconomic status, no matter their education level, no matter their age, no matter their past. God is for all people, and God is for you, and he offers you forgiveness no matter what your life looks like, if you will turn and follow him. The reality is that God offers forgiveness of sins, salvation, eternal life to all people. But the Bible tells us most, if not many, if not most, will choose to go their own way. And we see that in our story as well with King Herod and the religious leaders. As they are there in the same nation, but they fail to worship Jesus and instead try to have him killed. And what we see in their story uh, is our story of prior to Jesus. And so point three is this, and it's that selfish desires lead to spiritual indifference, or, or just the, the desires, the pursuits of this world lead to spiritual indifference. It's such a fascinating contrast that, that Matthew uh, puts out here. The people that, that should have been most eagerly and excitedly waiting the Messiah were the Jewish religious leaders and those living in Jerusalem. And yet it's mystics from Babylon, months, maybe years later, that alert them to the birth of the king. Herod and the religious leaders were so focused on their situation, on retaining their power, on retaining their traditions, that despite the prophecies they had memorized, they completely failed to recognize the birth of Jesus. 
the Magi show up some six months to two years later, and they ask them, where is the newborn king? And King Herod and the religious leaders have no idea what they're even talking about. The Savior of the world had come, and the religious leaders and the king where he had been born had no idea. Their selfish pursuits had left them spiritually blind. Their selfish desires had had caused them to miss the Savior. But the reality is, is, is the same is true of us. And of so many in our families, in, in our communities, in our friend groups, we get so distracted by the pursuits of the world, by our commitments, by our jobs, by our desires, that we fail to ever even take time to consider the state of our souls. Most of these things are not inherently bad, but they keep us so busy that we fail to pause and consider our need for Jesus. In C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, he writes, It is the desire of the devil not to make people wicked, but to make them indifferent. The pursuits of the world, of selfish desires, of just the the day-to-day so often make us indifferent to Jesus, to our salvation, to the only thing that the Bible says that matters. And we see that in this story, in the life of Herod and the religious leaders of the day. Yet in this case, Herod is not only indifferent, but he is hostile to this newborn king. And for Herod, this is who he was. Herod was a ruthless leader that was paranoid constantly that someone was going to try and usurp and take his position and his riches and power. A paranoia that led him to kill his wife, his mother, and her brother along with three of his sons. Herod was so ruthless that Caesar Augustus described him and said it was better to be Herod's swine than his son. He was a ruthless man that was completely focused and preoccupied on self-preservation, power, and wealth. A preoccupation that caused him to miss out on the true hope, satisfaction, forgiveness, and life that is only available in Jesus. In the same way, you would have expected the the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders. These are the the, the pastors and the leaders in the Jewish church. You would expect them to be the first to show up and worship at Jesus' birth. Yet they're nowhere to be found. They don't even know that he has been born. Because in an act of self-preservation and power, the religious leaders had aligned themselves with Rome and Herod in order to maintain their power. And so for the religious leaders, a threat to Herod had become a threat to them and their way of life. And so the birth of the Messiah, something that had been longed for, something that had been looked forward to for centuries, was now seen by the Jewish leaders as a threat as opposed to a dream come true. And because of that, they, like Herod, missed out on the true hope of the world in order to preserve their sense of normalcy, power, and tradition. These are the same men, the religious leaders, that will ultimately be the ones that scheme, manipulate, and have Jesus killed some 30 years later. And so as we stop and as we think about that, as we examine our lives, what is it that is our priority, our focus, our chief pursuit? And have those things made us indifferent to our soul and our need for forgiveness? It's quite possible that you are here today and you have devoted your life to good things. To good things like your family, your friends, your job, your community. But you have never taken time to consider your soul and your eternity. You have never taken time to consider your need for Jesus and your need for forgiveness. But that's the great news. And the great news is that no matter what your past looks like, Jesus loves you. He cares for you. And he offers you forgiveness of, your, of sins and eternal life if you would turn to him today. And so my prayer for you is that, that, that today is the day that you press pause on all of those other things. And you take time to consider who Jesus is 
and whether or not you will follow him and experience his free gift of forgiveness. So in this story, we have Herod and we have the religious leaders uh, who we would expect to be on the lookout for the promised Savior. But instead, they are indifferent and they miss out. And then on the other end of the spectrum, Matthew gives us these magi or these wise men, unexpected followers of Jesus. They're from the wrong country. They're from the wrong teachings. And yet they see this sign and they immediately drop everything to follow and worship the newborn king. And what we see in their life is that repentance, faith, and sacrifice lead to life. We saw this last week in the life of Joseph as well, and we see it again in the life of the Magi. These men see the star. They remember the prophecy. They drop everything that they have, everything that was a priority, and they head to Jerusalem and on to Bethlehem, likely via camel. They travel 900 to 1,000 miles on a camel. To put that in perspective, 900 miles from Green River is, is Portland to the west, San Diego to the south, Kansas City to the east. Um, I've made that drive to Portland many times, and I don't love it. But I can't even begin to imagine making that journey on a camel. Right? That is sacrifice, to just drop everything, to travel on a camel, to bring prized gifts. But for the Magi, it is worth it because their eyes are opened and they meet the King. They meet the Savior of the world. Their response to Jesus was to leave everything behind. All the things that, that they value to pursue the king. Herod and the scribes are threatened or are indifferent to Jesus. The wise men drop everything they have to follow him. If you come to church or if you've been in church, we talk a lot about this word repent. Uh, and the word repent literally means to stop what you are doing and to turn the other way and go the other direction. And over and over in the Bible, Jesus calls on people to repent, to stop what they are doing, to turn around and follow him. And these wise men here serve as such a great picture of this. They see the star, they see the sign, they stop what they are doing, they drop everything, they turn around and they follow the star to Jesus. And that's what Jesus still calls people to do today. It's a sacrifice to, to stop the things you're doing, to turn around and follow him. It's a sacrifice to put other fir others first. It's a, a sacrifice to love the unlovable. It's a sacrifice to, to give financially to the kingdom. It's a sacrifice to invest in others. It's a sacrifice to wake up and come to church, to study the Bible, to pursue Jesus. But it's worth it because of what you gain in Jesus. The, the Magi, they dropped everything to follow him, but it was worth it because of who Jesus is. In the same way, when we sacrifice, when we turn, when we repent and follow Jesus, it is worth it. Because of the abundant life, forgiveness, and eternal life we gain in him. Sacrificial faith and repentance gives sight to the blind, life to the dead. And so the wise men drop it all to follow Jesus. They come with the gifts of gold, of frankincense, of myrrh. And these gifts seem really strange at first to us when we read gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But each of these gifts are significant in their value, but they are even more significant in what they reveal to us about Jesus. So the first gift the wise men bring is gold. And gold is the most often mentioned valued metal in Scripture, as it is in modern times. Gold is valuable. It is good. Uh, and it was prized throughout the ancient world as well. And so the gold they bring represents the kingship of Jesus. In John 18, 37, Pilate asked Jesus, you are a king then? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. So Jesus came to be the king of the world. 
frankincense. That seems like a really strange gift, but it was an incense that was reserved for the temple altar. The gift of frankincense represented the deity of Jesus and that he is our high priest. Jesus is born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, fully God and fully human. Hebrews 2, 17 through 18 says, For this reason he, Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus came as God, and, and through his life, death, and resurrection made a way for us to be forgiven. He is our chief high priest. That's what the frankincense represents. And then myrrh, another one that I have never seen in my life. It was used by the Jews in the preparing of a corpse after death. The Jews did not practice full embalming of corpses, but a dead body was prepared for burial by washing, dressing it in special garments, and packing it with fragrant myrrh and other spices that would help to stifle the smell of the bodies that decayed. And so this gift of myrrh symbolized that Jesus' death that was coming, the sacrifice he would pay for our sins. Hebrews 10, 12 through 14 says, But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he, Jesus, waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. For by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. These wise men likely didn't understand the implications of these gifts, but they brought their best to worship the king. But these gifts serve as a reminder that sacrificial faith gives sight before the king. And they serve as a reminder that God is always in the details and he is in control. God knew the significance of these gifts and he leads the wise men to bring them. And the other fascinating thing about that is, I mentioned it earlier, but scholars believe that these gifts provided the financial resources for Mary and Joseph and Jesus to flee Herod's decree in verse 16 as they fled to Egypt. All right, so the sacrifice and endurance of the wise men to drop everything, to travel 1,800 miles plus round trip, to bring these gifts, serves a profound testimony of the impact of having seen and worshipped the king. So again, as we examine our lives, what do our lives say? What is it that we worship? Are we indifferent to the things of God, or are our lives surrendered to Jesus and devoted to the worship of him? Because the Bible is going to tell us that Jesus is worth it. He has given us, his followers, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, and, and purpose in this life. And in that, we see our final point, and that is that Jesus is the ultimate gift. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh are wonderful gifts, but the real gift of significance is the birth of Jesus. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. And with his birth, his eventual death and resurrection, salvation comes to mankind, forgiveness of our sins. That is the real gift of Christmas. Forgiveness is offered to us, the opportunity to be made right with God, the chance to spend eternity with Him. It is given as a gift through the life of Jesus that Christmas day through His birth. Paul in Ephesians 2 says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. He goes on to say, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Jesus is the ultimate gift. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Jesus died for us. And so the hope, the gift of Christmas is the forgiveness offered by Jesus. 
Uh, and, and maybe to clarify just a few of those words, uh, the word sin, it means anything that we do that goes against the things of God. Sin are the, the bad things we do or think. It's the, the lying, the cheating, the stealing, and so on. These things that we do that go against God and his plan for our life. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that just one sin in our life separates us from a holy and perfect God. Romans 6.23 says the wage or the, the price of that sin is death. But the second half of that verse says the gift of God through Jesus is eternal life. And again, that's the hope of the Christmas season. Jesus is the gift. He pays the, the sacrifice for our sins through his death on the cross. And the sin, the condemnation, the death that we rightly deserve is forgiven through Jesus. I've used this illustration before, but I love it. And if you heard it before, you get to hear it again. Um, but a long time ago, there was this thing called a typewriter. Um, if you're a young child, you know what a typewriter is? I got one in my office. My kids think it's a piano. You can come see it if you'd like. Uh, it was a little bit before my time, but it was this machine where you would press a key. And you have to press it down like really far. And when you'd press it down, a metal arm would swing forward and have like a letter on the back here. So you'd have an A here. It would hit this ink ribbon, and it would put an A on your paper. Um, and I mean, can you imagine trying to write a 50-page term paper on this? But the real problem with the typewriter was not how hard it was to press the buttons. It was that if you made a mistake, there was no backspace and no delete button. And so you'd have this little bottle of stuff called liquid paper or whiteout. And so you would make a mistake, and then you would paint over it with this white stuff. But the real problem was when you painted over with it, the words never went, really went away. And so you would like go back and type over that whiteout spot, but the evidence of the mistake was never really gone. First of all, your paper, when you would turn it in, there was this glossy mark that just screamed to everyone that looked at it, I made a mistake, and it's right here. And then if you held it up to the light just right, you could see what the mistake was. But now we have computers, don't we? And we're thankful for that. Because when you make a mistake on your computer, you hit that delete key, and that mistake is gone forever. When I print out my paper, I've made multiple mistakes, but there is absolutely no sign, no evidence of a mistake. And the Bible tells us that God's gift of forgiveness is like the delete key, not the whiteout. It's not just covered up, it is gone. David says in the Psalms that our sin is separated as far from us as the east is from the west. As the east is from the west, it is buried in the depths of the deepest sea. So that now if you bring up past sin to God, God says, I have absolutely no record of what you are talking about. Jesus is the ultimate gift because Jesus didn't come to just cover your sin. But he put it away by suffering the penalty of it in your place and putting it in the grave. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is built on the empty tomb. Jesus took your sin into the grave, and when he rose three days later, he left it there. The risen Jesus guarantees that no sin remains in you if you follow and believe in him. Our righteousness is complete. There is no condemnation left for me. That's the gift of Christmas. And so as we start to wind down, do you know that gift? Jesus says to repent, to stop what you're doing, to turn and follow him, and he will be faithful to forgive you of your sins. And so if you don't yet know forgiveness, the, the greatest gift of all, then my prayer for you is that today might be the day that you receive that gift for the first time. The gift has come. Will you receive the gift or will you remain indifferent? And if you have questions about that or if you're ready to follow Jesus today, then I would love to talk with you after the service or call someone you know that's a follower of Jesus and I know that they would love to talk with you as well. But if you're here today and you are already a follower of Jesus, do you grasp, do you 
appreciate the forgiveness you've been given in your life. Because when you realize the value of forgiveness and the freedom in it, then you can't help but be filled with great, great joy. You can't help but offer your life and your gifts in response to his forgiveness. We saw this last week in the, in the parable of the treasure in the field. Because of its value, the man gladly went and sold all that he had to attain the treasure. But we also see this value in another story. On the week before Jesus died, a woman came to a dinner where Jesus was eating. And she, without a word, just began to weep out of gratitude. And she wept so much that she soaked his feet. And so she let down her hair and she began to dry his feet with her hair. Then she took out this alabaster box of perfume and she broke it over his feet to anoint him. The perfume box is described as costing about a year's wages. So today, somewhere $45,000, $50,000. you imagine pouring out $50,000 of something on Jesus' feet? The people watching began to murmur to themselves, if Jesus is really a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this was. Meaning that she was a sinner. She was an outcast. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said back to them, when I came in, you didn't respond in this way. You didn't weep. You didn't anoint my feet. You didn't offer me gifts. Then he said, because this woman has been forgiven much, she loves much. Friends, when we understand what we have been forgiven for, when we understand the completeness of the forgiveness Jesus offers, then we ought to be overwhelmed with the gravity of our freedom and forgiveness. When we understand the greatness of the gift, then it only makes sense to respond with our best, as this woman and the wise men did. When we understand what God has done for us in sending Jesus, in dying on the cross, in conquering death, and offering complete forgiveness and life in Him, then our only natural response as followers is to give Him our lives, our gifts, our best, each and every day. So this Christmas season, as you celebrate the greatest gift of all, Jesus, Take time to remember that the real gift isn't just his birth, but it's his sacrificial death and the resurrection by which we are forgiven. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and the wise men all knew Jesus was the Messiah. They were told in different ways, but they all got it. They understood that this was the Messiah, and they responded by adjusting their lives and making him the priority. If you know Jesus, how are you reacting and responding to the gift you have been given? Does your, does your life say to the world that Jesus is my priority, or does it say something else? So Melinda's going to come, and she's going to play. And as she comes and plays, I want us to take a few minutes and just consider our response to Jesus. Uh, for some, we might be here, and we, we might be indifferent, or, or we have followed him, but we have made him a distant priority. And so first, if you're here and you're, you're not a follower of Jesus, the, the gospel, the, the hope of Jesus is this, is that God has brought you here. He has revealed himself to you just as he did to the wise men, just as he did to Herod, just as he did to the Jewish leaders through the star. And the question is this, what is your response to who Jesus is? What will you personally do with Jesus? Will you follow him or will you ignore and go your own way? And if you're here and you are ready to repent, you can follow Jesus in your seat today. The Bible says if you follow him with a heart surrender, if you can pray something as simple as this, I know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. I believe that you sent Jesus to live the sinless life I couldn't live, to die the death that my sin deserved. And I believe Jesus rose victorious over death and offers eternal life to me today. I want to follow you 
not just today, but the rest of the days of my life. I want to follow you. And Paul says, if you repent, if you repent with a surrendered heart and you ask forgiveness, God is faithful and he will forgive. He will grant you new life and eternal life in him. Your sins won't just be covered, but they will be erased. Or maybe you're here at this point and you've trusted Jesus with your life in the past, but you have become indifferent to his call on your life. Maybe your life looks more like the world than it does the wise men or the woman who gave up everything to worship and follow Jesus. If that's you, my challenge for you would be to surrender, to repent from whatever is keeping you from following Jesus wholeheartedly. My prayer for you is that this Christmas season you would repent and fully experience the call, the plans, the future God has in store for you. So as Melinda plays, I would ask you just to bow your head. Everyone here to bow your head and just take a moment to examine your life and to pray. And when we're done, if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, how to follow Jesus, or anything else, I would love to talk with you. So as Melinda plays, I'd ask you just to pray. Lord, we thank you that you sent Jesus as the ultimate gift. God, we thank you that if we will turn and if we will follow you and put our faith in you, that you are faithful to forgive. That you don't just cover our sins, but that you are faithful to erase our sins. That we can live this life confident that our future uh, is in your hands and that eternal life is is in our future. God, I pray that anyone here that doesn't know you, that you would just help them to pause and and consider their need for a Savior. That they would pause and have some stillness in their day to consider their soul and their eternity. And God, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know, that know you, that you would give them the courage to trust you and follow you today. And God, I pray for so many here that do know you, Lord, I pray that you would help us from becoming indifferent to you. God, and that we would be people that, that, that give our lives our best back to you in gratitude for the forgiveness and life we have in you. God, we thank you so much this Christmas season for the ultimate gift that is Jesus. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for being here today. i got a few announcements for you, and then we'll uh, let you go. Um, If you are new to Living Hope Church, there should be a welcome card somewhere in the area of you. If you wouldn't mind filling that out and placing that in a box on the back table, we would uh, really appreciate it. Uh, That's also you can place your tithes and offerings. You consider this your church home. Uh, We've got a Christmas Eve service coming up. Friday, Christmas Eve, December 24th, if I got the day of the week wrong, December 24th, 6 p.m. here at the church. Come and join us for that. I promise I will not talk as much, and we will get you out of here uh, in in 45 minutes or so. But we'd love for you to join us for that, to come and sing and just celebrate uh, Jesus. 
Uh, on the back of your sermon notes, there's a few announcements of when things are returning. Uh, small group will return January 9th. Uh, youth group will return January 5th. And kids night will return uh, January uh, 12th. So that information's on the back of your sermon notes. I think that's all I have for you today. If you have any questions or need anything, please come and talk with us. We hope you have a wonderful week. We hope you have a wonderful Christmas, and we hope you'll join us on Christmas Eve. So have a great week. Mm -hmm.